What's up, fools? It is happy hour on August 14th, 2020. Happy to have you on the QTR podcast with George Gammon. We're going to figure it all out today. First and foremost, I want to remind my listeners that this podcast is brought to you advertisement free. Thank you very much to my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of my patrons, then I'm going to give you the rules for today's podcast. Then we're going to get on with George Gammon, one of the smartest guys that I know, trying to figure out exactly and precisely how fucked things really are. First and foremost, this podcast is brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver bullion providers at JM Bullion. There is a link to JM Bullion in my podcast description. It is the only place that I am buying gold and silver bullion from right now. They have a decade of experience and a great reputation. They have sold over $3 billion worth of bullion. They are one of my favorite places to look for gold and silver bullion. They always have a lot in stock. They turn around my orders very quickly. And QTR podcast listeners have their own saleswoman at JM Bullion, the lovely Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y at jmbullion.com. If you email Kathy, tell her you're a QTR podcast listener. She'll give you $5 off your offer and she'll give you free shipping. So give her a shout. Tell her you heard JM Bullion on the QTR podcast before you order. She'll help you check what's in stock and hopefully find a purchase that is right for you and will help you avoid the central bank shit show that we are currently undergoing. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at the Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is my favorite day trading and online investing community run by my brother Pete Hedgetus, who is an honest man and a great guy to do business with. Pete started the Trader's Path because he got tired of the nonsense and the bullshit of other day trading services. You know what I'm talking about, the kind that front run your orders, the kind that only give a shit about your money and don't really care about you. Pete had belonged to a couple of those services, said he wanted to do something different and on his own, so he started the Trader's Path which is an honest community for honest people that want to have a dialogue, they want to exchange ideas, they want to keep each other company during the trading day. Pete's service provides daily watch lists so you know exactly what they're looking at during the day, a live stream so you can trade along with Pete as well as investor education. He trades stocks and options, red markets, green markets, they do it all. And best part about it is, you know Pete's an honest guy because he's a buddy of mine and he's a good guy to do business with. So check out my friend over at the Trader's Path. Pete will hook you up with a discount if you tell him that QTR sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by the Sanglucci Steam Room. The Steam Room is the best tool out there to track money coming into the options market, no questions asked. Sanglucci and Wall Street Jesus pioneered the Steam Room about a decade ago. It is a beautiful piece of software. This is before unusual options activity became a big deal everywhere, before everybody started doing this. Their software is different. Not only does it track unusual options, options activity, but it also reads tape in different ways to try to give you a heads up as to where the big money in the market is going because this will often telegraph where equities are going to go. And it's the type of product that can pay for itself if you use it correctly in relatively short amount of time. It is a staple in Lucci's trading arsenal. It's part of what has made him a seven-figure trader. I have seen his P&L, ladies and gentlemen. I know he's not full of shit. And Wall Street Jesus is really the OG in terms of tracking uh, unusual options activity. He was doing it and coined the term sweepers before anybody else was doing it. 
Just a couple of the reasons why you should check out my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. Tell them QTR sent you. Find Lucci somewhere on Twitter. Tell him QTR sent you and tell him you want a discount. He'll make sure that you get taken care of. Or if you want a free trial or any of that shit, he'll work with you, folks. Because we're buddies and that's how we get down. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold. My friends at Traders for a Cause, my favorite charity. Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my buddy Jay Mintzmeyer, a great shipping analyst, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus. Thank you guys so much for your continued support. And some of my newest patrons like Nasca Fandon. Jordan Weaver, Fidelis Etsuveas, John McBride, Sam Kotler, Sivrit Wallen, thank you, my friend. I think it's Sir Sive, Sive Wallen. I don't know how to say your name, brother. Sorry. Robert Mintner, Corey Matthews, my buddy JP is in the house. James F. just signed up too. Thank you, brother. George Baker and Dave Swingle, Chris and Chris Bott. I appreciate your support, guys. It is what keeps the podcast going. So if you enjoy the content, putting your money where your mouth is, is about as cool of a fucking thing as you can do. My homeboy, Sebastian, up in Montreal. What's going on, man? Thank you for your continued support. David Fiorino, Greg Buckholz. I appreciate you guys so much. And finally, my buddy, Adam Wise. I appreciate your support. Two rules for today's podcast. First and foremost, Two drink minimum for this podcast and all podcasts. Folks, we're exposing how the global central banking machine is the greatest Ponzi scheme known to man. If you can handle that information sober, well, we just don't recommend it on this podcast. We recommend a two drink minimum, especially today. It's Friday. The trading day is over and it's happy hour. So most of you guys are probably fulfilling this requirement already. I know I will be well on my way to fulfilling this requirement. We'll have to check in with George Gammon and see how he's doing. Finally, this podcast is not investment advice. It's not life advice. I'm not an investment advisor. I hold no registrations. I hold no licenses. You shouldn't listen to anything that I or my guests say. You shouldn't do anything that we recommend. You should not do anything that we don't recommend. We have a little saying on this podcast and it goes, do your research elsewhere, fools. All right, let's get started. Happy to have today, live from the islands, he's on vacation, on an undisclosed island, I'm not going to tell him where you are, the host of the Rebel Capitalist Show, and man who needs to talk more and interview less, in my opinion, except, of course, when he's interviewing me, George Gammon, what's going on? Not much, buddy, it's great to be back on the show, thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you back. Uh, especially given the circumstances right now. It's been a couple of months and nothing short of the entire nation has basically collapsed. I mean, I know you live in um, Medine and you don't live in the United States, but what does it look like to the rest of the world right now? What's going on in the United States? Well, that's a great question. I think we're seeing that by the amount of countries that aren't allowing Americans to come in. I mean, I think that's one of the most shocking things of the last, or you know, since we've had this COVID deal. I mean, who would have thought last year that I would have said, if you own an American passport, it would be a liability. I mean, no one would have believed that. They probably would have believed that less than, than a global pandemic. Sure. But yet we find ourselves as Americans in a position where we're persona non grata in a lot of uh, you know, main countries in Europe. I, be- I believe that's still the case. I know just where I am in this undisclosed location where I think everybody pretty much knows where I am anyway. <laughs> but I'm right, in the, right in the Caribbean, about a 20 minute ferry to St. Martin. 
and they're not allowing Americans there. At least they weren't last week. They could be now, but it's just kind of this uh, play it by ear type situation. And it's from a standpoint of personal liberty and freedom, which is something that I value tremendously. I would assume most of your listeners do as well. We're in a, a world right now that it's it's unfortunately getting a lot worse. And I actually interviewed Ron Paul the other day, and we kind of had this discussion where if you look back at 2001 with 9-11 and the introduction of the Patriot Act, therefore we have TSA, and all of these new restrictions that we have to live by and that we kind of got acclimated to. I mean, what's the yeah. next round of restrictions that's going to be brought upon us by the, the central planners that are that is always for our quote unquote protection. It's for your security. But yet really it's just a way to misallocate resources and become more of a police state, in my opinion. And if if 9-11 got us to where we were as of 2019, I'm really um uh, pessimistic, unfortunately, to know where we'll be in 2030 as a result of what we're dealing with right now with COVID. Yeah, I agree with you. I was actually just reading an article this morning. What was life like before? What was life like in airports before 2001? And also, I was listening to or I was reading Bob Lazar's book, and they were talking about him taking George Knapp to Los Alamos National Lab back in the 80s, and they just walked right in, he said. You know, he said, before 9-11, you would, you would wave to the guard, and he said, we brought George Knapp, who was a news reporter in Las Vegas, in with the camera crew and everything. <laughs> they, didn't need to get, they didn't need to get permission. They didn't need to get security tags. You know, they waved to this guy at Los Alamos National Lab, which is where we have a lot of our country's biggest secrets, Right. And they just kind of waltz straight in the door. So I think that is I think we're definitely going to see another wave of that. And it's just it's an excuse to make government bigger, too. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the big thing. I mean, the argument, the pushback you always get is, well, we live in a dangerous world and we need the the central planners and politicians protecting us and we, we need to be on their side. But that's all just a complete fallacy because it would assume that we are we have some layer of additional protection due to TSA and that is utter nonsense. I mean, if you think that TSA is preventing a bad guy from getting into the country, you are absolutely fooling yourself. Let me give you an example. I I, w I was dating this gal back in uh maybe 2000 uh 11 or, or I'm sorry, no, 2014, something like that. Anyway, she was a gal. She lived in New York. Okay. So I went up there. We went to Brooklyn, went to a, uh, one of these, uh, little flea markets, or whatever. And I bought this necklace that has this rifle shell on it. That's the size of my index finger. I mean, it is absolutely giant and it's not like hollowed out or <laughs> it's, it looks like a live shell that you just put in a gun. And I bought that thing. I threw it in my toiletries bag and totally forgot about it. Right. Three years later, after I've taken, I mean, countless flights domestically and internationally going in and out of TSA nonstop, I cleaned out my toiletry bag and I'm like, oh, wow, I forgot. I had that giant rifle shell in there the whole time. You know how many times TSA caught it? Zero, zero times. So if I can go back and forth through, let's call it a hundred flights, 
with uh, and taking a giant rifle shell. I mean, obviously the bad guys could get in anything they want. So TSA isn't doing anything except for re wasting resources and uh, being a burden on our productivity and our personal <laughs> I heard a similar story from, uh, we'll say, an acquaintance who traveled uh, about 10 or 12 hours via flight a couple of years back, uh, many years back, we'll say, uh, way back, so far back that it's past the statute of limitations. But he, <laughs> he said that when he arrived at his destination... But after 2001, you know, obviously, right, he said right. when he arrived at his international destination and and got home and unpacked his suitcase, he realized, you know, he had his pot stash in his suitcase the whole time. He, he was keeping it there while the suitcase was at home and he inadvertently right. packed the suitcase. And, you know, when he got there, realized he had everything with him. And he was like, oh, man, he's like, you know, I, I better smoke all this before I get home, <laughs> before, I go to, <laughs> before I go to leave. <laughs> Now, I've changed some details of that story to protect the innocent. Uh, so yeah. Don't tell Kamala Harris because he'll be in jail. But uh, but a similar story to that. So yeah, I, I've got other stories like that as well that would completely blow your mind. But I don't know that I'm past the statute of limitations. So we'll, we'll hold off on that till the next podcast. Yeah, please let us know as soon as that statute of limitations <laughs> passes, and we will. Uh, We'll make sure that we discuss that immediately. So right. the last time you were on was in May, and okay. a lot has changed since May. A lot, and mm -hmm. I want to start to I want to start by kind of going back a couple of months and asking you about your take on the George Floyd riots and okay. what took place in the country uh, after that story. Of course, it's a it's a different little bit of a different scene now that that body camera footage has been released. I don't know if you saw that or not, but, uh, no, I, I, I don't follow that stuff. I try to just stay out of the drama. That sounds good. All right. Well, to the extent that you'd like to indulge my listeners, what's your take on the whole situation? Well, I think it shows that there was an underlying dissatisfaction with the way the system currently operates. And I want to try to refrain from using the word capitalism. I think it gets a bad rap, and I think it's easy to vilify the word. I would prefer to use the term free markets, uh, because I think if you go to anyone on the street and say, hey, what do you think of a free market where you can own your own property and make your own decisions? Right. I think you'd have a tough time finding someone that was opposed to that type of of system. But what we have now is not a free market. It's anything but a free market. And it's definitely not capitalism. But unfortunately, they get the, the bad rap. And we have this cronyism. We have a history since 1913 of just straight inflation, which really forces people to go into financial assets to get ahead and take further and further risk, you know, go further out the risk curve. And then we get these boom bust cycles, which, uh, as you know, from being a student of the markets, when we have a big bubble, the last people that get in is the average Joe and Jane. It's just the way we're hardwired as human beings. We respond with emotion. We don't respond like a robot, although we'd like to think that we do. And therefore you have the market sucking as many participants in at the very last moment before it crashes. 
And, uh, you know, you look at any bubble throughout history, that's the way it works. So what ends up happening is because we have this inflation, the, the, the Fed and the government really force average people to go into financial assets. They get caught up in this boom bust cycle. And then we see what, exactly what happened in 2008. Pretty much the average person gets wiped out. And those that are in the not even the one percent, I'd say the one percent of the one percent, they're the ones that that benefit substantially. But it all goes back to inflation. So my point is, there's this underlying um, uneasiness. There's underlying dissatisfaction with the system. And most people that that they feel this, they know something's wrong, and but they don't understand the system. Right enough to put their finger on it so it's just oh well it's, it's got to be capitalism it's got to be you know these fat cats are getting bailed out the fed is doing all these things with their cronies and that's capitalism they don't realize that that's the the opposite of capitalism but my point with going back to um uh, the unfortunate case of with, with mr floyd is i think it's just a representation of the underlying dissatisfaction with the way the system works right now. Before I retired in 2012, I, had, I was very, very fortunate to have a couple fantastic business partners. And one of them always said something that has stuck with me to this day. Very simple, but so true. Whenever we had an employee that was pissed off about something or they, we know they're a good employee, but they weren't performing well, I'd always say, man, I, I don't understand why this person is such in, in such a bad mood or why they're, they're blowing their, their fuse over something so small. And this business partner would look at me and says, you know, it's never about what it's about. And meaning that what you see on the surface, it's never about that. It's always about something underlying. And sure enough, when you would sit that employee down and talk to them and say, hey, man, what's, what's going on? I, I noticed you're, you're kind of in a bad mood lately. You dig a little deeper, then after a half hour of uh, talking to this person in dialogue, getting them to open up, you find that, oh, it's really about the fact that you know, they're struggling with their relationship. Maybe they're, uh, they're just stressed out about something that they weren't willing to share earlier. And that's what it's really about. And I think that's what's going on with this George Floyd situation. Unfortunately, the the quote unquote solution from the government and the Fed will just exacerbate this problem. It'll make it worse until I mean, I, I hope we we figure out some way to, to change directions. But in my opinion, if we were to change directions, it would cause such a, a, a massive amount of pain in the economy for let's call it a year or two because we'd have to flush out all the malinvestment. We'd have to take the medicine that we should have taken. I mean, going back to the, the, the 1990s with the dot-com bust, we should have taken the medicine back then, but we haven't. We've just continued to kick the can down the road. So my point is, I think that w the, the pain right now is just politically unpalatable, and therefore we're just going to try to kick the can down the road, which of course will exacerbate the problem until the politicians don't have a choice and the system collapses in on itself, whether that's through a loss of fiat currency because they've tried to prop the system up by creating all these additional bank reserves, they meaning the Fed, 
or um, you know maybe it gets out into the real economy by the Fed trying to prop up all of these zombie corporations like we've seen Japan do for so long. Maybe it's in the form of the government uh, deficit spending, the Fed monetizing it through stimulus and infrastructure, and that's what creates M2 money supply that actually increases faster than the, uh, the rate of velocity decreasing, which would give us the, the stagflation that many of us are worried about. But, um, you know, at some point, there's got to be a release valve. It's just we know central planning doesn't work. It's never worked in the past, and it won't get us out of this problem either. And not unlike the way that the Fed distorts the economy, addressing the wrong problem in the case of the civil unrest that's happening here, I think, can further distort the future. Because what we have here is we have an incident that's being blamed on systemic racism. And is there racism in the country? The answer is yes, there is. Was this event caused by systemic racism? After watching the body camera footage, I mean, I can say that there doesn't appear to be any evidence that this incident had anything to do with race. I am not inside the officer's mind, so I don't know what he was thinking, but as far as what we can see on the video... There's nothing in the video that indicates that this had anything to do with race. Rather, I feel like this incident, as you're saying, was the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of people that are struggling socioeconomically. And I think that addressing that unrest as though the issue at hand is systemic racism when really... In my opinion, there is there is racism in the country, but I would say if I had to guess, the overlying problem is what you said. It is the systematic brutalization of the lower class and even the middle class by the inequality that is being hoisted upon them by the central banks. But to your point, people don't really understand that, George, so they go to kind of what may be the lowest hanging fruit in terms of trying to find a solution. But now look look at what's happened as a result of the civil unrest, right? Now you have Joe Biden, who basically admitted he was going to pick his running mate because she was a woman of color. Before he acknowledged he wanted to pick somebody that had any credentials, he, right, right. he said that he wanted to pick a woman of color. So... The question then becomes, well, would Kamala Harris's track record and policy record have won the vice president's seat if she was a white male that was 60 years old? And I think the answer to that is no. So by addressing potentially the wrong problem, we get more of the wrong solution. And that seems to me to be very similar to what's going on with the central banking model. Yeah, we need we need less government. We, we don't need more government. And going back to your um, I, j- I just want to briefly talk about how important inflation is. Sure. This this conversation. And I know a lot of people say, well, I don't get it. That doesn't make any sense. We're talking about systemic racism. We're talking about George Floyd. We're talking about, uh, you know, the poor and middle class actually having a fighting chance to improve their lot in life. But if you really think about it, it goes back to this point. And I, I just actually had this convert, well, you know, going back and forth on Twitter the last uh, day about this. And I said the people that are kind of anti-capitalist, I, I think they've misplaced their anger. 
in the sense they're kind of pissed off or their battle cry is against capitalism. But if they really thought it through, I think they're really more pissed off about the inflation. And I think they're trying to solve the symptoms instead of trying to fix the underlying disease. So let me give you an example. I actually looked up some statistics this morning about uh, what would be, in my opinion, probably the equivalent of minimum wage from 1752 to 1860. And this was just a normal laborer that would be, uh, you know, you'd pay uh, as far as an agricultural output uh, for whatever you're growing back then, okay? Outside of the, obviously not a, a one of the slaves, but someone that you were uh, paying a minimum wage to. So in 1752, the day rate was about 33 cents per day. Okay, in 1860, the day rate was about a dollar, so it went up about 200 percent. But during that same time, the deflation was at 34 percent for for that time frame. Let's call it 100 years. So prices of goods and services went down by 34%, while the minimum wage, let's call it, went up by 200%. So let's take that a, a step further and assume that in today's dollars, that person would have been making $2,000 a month. And let's just say that their expenses were $2,000 a month. So they're just at a break even, they're not saving any money. At the end of this time frame, using those same numbers, they would be making $6,000 a month, but their expenses would have gone down to $1,400 a month. So there's a delta between $6,000 and $1,400, where all of that is disposable income or money that they could invest. It's additional purchasing power compared to where they started, which was at a break-even their expenses and their income was the same at 2000. You see, that's what inflation does. And what I put in this tweet is the free market in capitalism produced that. There, there, show me the government, show me the central planner that has produced those types of results for the, for the poor, for the middle class. You see, it, it just doesn't happen. So I want to make sure that we're framing the argument and we're not trying to solve the symptoms, but we're actually trying to focus on curing the underlying disease. And if you were, if you set up a system, Chris, with hard money, where the governments and the central planners couldn't create more currency units, it was out of their hands, you would pretty much eliminate war or you'd reduce it substantially, and you would reduce or eliminate inflation. We would have this positive deflation from entrepreneurs out there in the free market trying to produce better goods and services. And I, and I, I wanna point out that from the year 1800 to 1900, prices went down by 50%. So think about how much the dollar increased in value, and that's with the massive inflation we had during the Civil War. If you, would, if you would have taken out the Civil War 
in, in other words, taking out the politicians' ability to print currency units to actually go to war in the first place, if we were on a, let's say, a Bitcoin system or a, a dollar standard that, that, was, that was rigid, uh, then you would have had the dollar appreciate in value. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say uh, it, prices went down by 50% during that 100-year time frame. Prices would have gone down by 100%. 150%. And just think how much that would have improved the lives of ordinary everyday citizens while their wages are going to be, go, are going up. I want to be very very clear because people are going to think, "Oh, deflation, that's horrible." Because yeah, prices are going down, but everyone's going to lose their job because the employers have no per, uh, uh, pricing power and they're going to, you know, lay everyone off or fire everyone. No, no, no. This is the prices are going down while wages are going up, while GDP, nominal GDP, is going up, and we have nominal interest rates at an average of call it four percent. I mean, that's how you improve the lives of everyday citizens. So it goes back to hard money. Now, but another thing I want to address that I don't think people really think through, because very few people have been employers. Most people have only been employees. But see, I've been both. I've been on both sides of the coin. And I've also run businesses and started businesses with zero to five employees and businesses with over 100 employees. And they're a lot different. It, it's, it's apples and oranges. And I know over my years, I've met and I've hung out with a lot of entrepreneurs, very successful entrepreneurs. And I can tell you definitively, I have never met an entrepreneur that wouldn't hire you because of X, Y, Z reason if you could make them a ton of money. Right. Right. Ever, 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 ever. And if you think about those two thoughts, I don't see how they can live in someone's mind at the same time. And the two thoughts I'm referring to, it, one, all these employers and entrepreneurs, they're just insatiably greedy. They have this lust for money. That, they, that, that, that we just have to curtail. That's thought one. But then thought two is that they're just wildly racist as well. And they won't hire women. It's like this boys club. It's a fraternity. And they only want to hire people that look exactly like them. But just think about that for a second. How, how are those two thoughts possible? Like you, they can't coexist because either you're greedy and if you're insatiably greedy, you're going to hire anyone. Right. That can that buy can, you the money. That can make you the money. That's right. It is merit only. And you don't care what they look like. You don't care what uh, genitalia they have. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't matter. And then or let's just say you're someone who is a racist, the people that we you know, don't want in our society for obvious reasons, then you're going to get torn apart in the free market because you have to pay a price right. to express the racism because you're not going to hire those amazing employees. They're going to make you all the money. And those amazing employees are going to go down the road to the other employer who's going to hire them because he's greedy or she's greedy. And they're going to put you out of business. Done. The free market handles the problem. So I, 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 I would encourage people to kind of use that as a thought experiment and just put yourself in the position of an employer. Let's say that you worked your tail off your entire life 
to save up, let's say, $100,000, and you took out an SBA loan to start uh, a Subway franchise or a McDonald's franchise, something like that, and you're there working 12 hours a day, you've got your kid's college education on the line, you have your entire life savings, it's your responsibility to provide for your family. All of that is on your shoulders. It's a huge, huge responsibility and burden. And then someone comes in the front door that could make you a lot of money, and you're going to say, nah, I don't think so. I'm, you know, I'm a guy, and I just like hanging out with other dudes. So now nah, go ahead and, and, and go down the road to my, you know, the Burger King, and they'll hire you, and you can make them a lot of money. Like, really? Who's going to say that? Put yourself in that position. When you've got that much writing on the line, it's life or death. It trusts me as an entrepreneur, I have been there. I have maxed out my credit card just to make payroll. Many times. I, I mean, you're, you're, you're living on the edge so much and you will do anything. You'll work 90 hours a week, you won't sleep, you'll live in your car, you'll forego meals just to be successful. And that includes hiring anyone regardless of the color of their skin or their genitalia. So that's my, my, my rant there that I'd really like people to uh, kind of think through. And uh, I'm done talking on that. <laughs> and put yourself, put yourself in the shoes of the consumer, okay? Yeah. In, a, in a free market system or a capitalist system, whatever you want to call it, the consumer has the power by the ability to choose where they want to spend their capital. And so along the same lines of the example that you brought up if you can't imagine yourself being a business owner imagine yourself being the consumer and just ask yourself a very simple question which is if you're going to get a pizza for the family tonight on a friday night and there's two pizza shops in town and you know one of those pizza shops discriminates against anybody that isn't italian or anybody that's a woman or you know there's some other type of discrimination going on and the other one welcomes their doors to everybody. Where are you more assuming the pizzas and the quality and the wait times and everything are similar or the same? Where are you going to put your money to work? And that is, again, a key function of the free markets, right? In, in the free market essentially solving this problem. It absolutely is, Chris. But I think that people might not recognize that. As, as far as the power of the consumer and the power of the free market, the power of competition and the power of employees. That, that's another thing. Let me talk about that. As an employer, I can tell you, I, I've, I've had thousands of employees in my day. I've probably got 20 or 30 employees now in, in, in quote unquote retirement. But I can tell you it's incredibly difficult to find a good employee. I mean, at any position. I don't care if it's a telemarketer, I don't care if it's a, a salesperson, if it's an office manager, it is so hard to find someone that's really, really top shelf. That when you do, they've got a ton of leverage. They, 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 they really do, and I, I don't think people, uh, at least employees, recognize how much leverage they, they actually have. So I, I don't wanna get off on too much of a, a, a tangent there, but I, I hope that people really realize that as well. And then what, what was your question again? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't really a question. I was just acknowledging that the consumer has the power, but 
I want to go back to something that you oh, said. Oh, I'm sorry, Chris. Yeah, I'm sorry, Chris. I, I, I wanted to circle back. And on that note, as far as the consumer having the power, and I, I think that as a society, we've lost the we've lost sight of the importance of that or how much that comes into play because we haven't let anyone go bust. And, and you see, if you think back to 2008 and 2009, where we didn't allow the free market to work, we didn't allow uh, Schumpeter's uh, creative destruction. And, and, and we all know that's a rule of economics, but for some reason, and we saw Japan, we saw them prop up these zombie companies. So we saw AIG, we saw all these people that got propped up, they didn't go out of business. So now all these kids that are in college at the time, they kind of see that. And then through the last 10 years, profit doesn't matter at all, zero. I mean, what's the point of making a profit? I mean, your stock will just go up and up and up and up regardless of profit. All you got to have is a really cool, fun story. Right. And get everyone on social media to back you. That's what's important. You got to get people to like you. You don't need to make a profit. And so I, I, I think that if, if we had the emphasis more on, yes, it's a free market, businesses are failing. If you don't provide for the consumer, if you don't compete, if you don't hire the right people, you are going bust. And if we don't see that, we just kind of assume that it will never happen. And therefore, that, that employers and entrepreneurs can make decisions, poor decisions, based on things uh, such as just virtue signaling, instead of things like just hiring people based on merit and, and kicking ass and taking names and producing products and services that people want to buy and beating all of your competitors to produce lower and lower prices. So I, you see what I'm saying? I think it might be that, that mindset we've gotten into because the central planners just haven't let anyone go bust. Yeah, well, it completely, it winds up in a total distortion of the system. And so what would normally be a relatively healthy economic cycle that if you were to kind of visualize it might look like a, a wheel turning in a circle you have now this crazy wild you know oblong shaped uh, distorted economy that when you try to wheel your stagecoach down the road on these big long oblong tires it winds up flipping and flopping around because yeah. the mechanics that keep the economy running smoothly in a free market are so distorted that we really don't know which way is up. And to be honest with you, we're starting to see some indication that people who normally wouldn't recognize it are starting to recognize these distortions. A good example, this morning, Nancy Pelosi even came out and said, well, the stock market is high because the Fed is propping it up. I mean, I'd never heard <laughs> anybody in politics make that kind of a statement with the exception of Rand Paul and Ron Paul, maybe and to hear Pelosi say it, you know, to hear a Democrat saying it's like, wow, may maybe it is becoming that obvious. Yeah, I think she's probably just saying that because she knows that Trump gained some popularity by saying it. So she's just trying to I, I don't you know, I, these politicians, Chris, I, I think they're really the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, I, I think they're the dregs <laughs> of our society. And I don't think they're intelligent enough to 
connect those dots like you just did. I think they've just got someone handing them a piece of paper that says, say this, and I think you'll, <laughs> you'll get some, uh, you know, some fan mail or something like that. But uh, I, I think you do bring a really, uh, you bring up a very interesting point that I've been thinking through, and I, I've done a couple whiteboard videos on it, and it's this idea that the economy has been set up to a way where structurally it's incredibly unsound. And I, I know a lot of people are talking about a debt jubilee right now. And if you understand uh, MMT, and, and not the part of MMT that's a prescription, but more the MMT that just kind of describes the way that the system works, like kind of like a basketball scoreboard, there's quite a bit of value there to understand. Uh, now, I, I would disagree. I don't think they really understand the euro dollar system. I don't think they understand the TGA. There, there's quite a few things I, I think are, uh, they haven't thought about. But as far as just looking at the, 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 the Fed's balance sheet and the balance sheet of the, the federal government, yes, I mean, if the, if the Fed had all of the treasuries as assets on their balance sheet, I mean, kind of look at the BOJ. I think the BOJ has, what, 50 or 60 percent of JGBs on their balance sheet. I mean, theoretically, if they had 100 percent, then they could just click a button just like a scoreboard and say you got an NBA game that's at 100 points and 100 points, click the button, everything goes back to zero. And <laughs> the MMT person would say, well, you start all over. It's a debt jubilee. Why not? It just all, it's not gold. It's not pieces of paper. It's just digits on a scoreboard. So why not just take the digits back to zero and we'll just start all over again with this government spending and we'll just have a boom in the economy. But what they don't realize because they're just looking at things on a piece of paper, on a spreadsheet. They're just looking at the accounting side of it. But they don't understand that the government spending and the debt that took us to 100% debt to GDP or 120% debt to GDP, or in Japan's case, let's call it 220% debt to GDP, that has distorted the, con the economy so badly it's, it's, it's misallocated resources. It's created so much moral hazard that even if you did just click the button and take the score back to zero, you're still not solving anything. It really wouldn't change the matter. And if you think about the United States right now, I mean, how much is, a, is the debt a burden as we speak right now? Now, I'm not saying it's, it's not going to be a huge burden in the future, but uh, it, it's, it's going to be an albatross, that's for sure. But you know, as far as just servicing the debt, okay, it's four hundred billion a year, let's call it. It's really not making that much of a difference. And it doesn't make too much of a difference. They just keep raising the debt ceiling and all these things. But it but so if we just hit the reset button, government spending still accounts for fifty percent of GDP right now in the United States. Fifty percent. And it's probably even higher now that we that we've got COVID and all this uh all the deficit spending. So if it's at 50% of GDP, even if we could wipe out all 26 trillion in debt tomorrow, boom, it's done. The government has zero debt. So what? What, what does that do? We, we still, our economy is still so distorted that the government represents 50% of it. I mean, does, would that really do anything? And my point is that it's not about the debt and servicing the debt. That's not about the, that's not the burden. The burden is how distorted the economy got by the government spending in the first place. 
And I think that's something that uh, not a lot of people are thinking through. Yeah. Schiff always says, if you can't unwind the QE, then you don't have proof that it really worked. He's been saying that for like a decade, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much another way of, of, of saying it. Yeah, the, or, you know, uh, Venezuela is a great example of that. They completely built their economy around a one-trick pony. So when that uh, oil was gone or that revenue stream, uh, then they're, they're toast because th- their economy can't be supported. So even if you wiped out all the dollar-denominated debt that Venezuela has, they still have a, a, a horrible economy that at some point is going to come crashing down. You look at the zombie companies in Japan right now. They're just propped up by the government. It's one of the reasons why they've gone through this uh, stagnation for the past, call it 30 years. Is is somehow the the government wiping out their debt? Is it somehow going to fix the zombie corporations? No, they're they're still there. They're still there. So we've got to, I think, redirect our energy into not so much looking at the debt, although that's a huge problem, but looking at what the debt has done to the economy. That I think it's just a different way of looking at it, and I think it'll make all the difference, hopefully. Because in a case like Japan where you're talking about it, when you have the government propping up a company just for the sake of propping it up, obviously the bang for your buck or the production you're going to get from that company is going to diminish drastically regardless of whether or not there is demand for it and the quality of the production. So then you have this kind of collapse that starts there. Well, if it's, you know, just because the market would have already shut the company down, the market would have already forced it into bankruptcy, the market would have already forced creative destruction. Yeah, exactly. I want to go back to something that you said a little while ago about inflation. And I think if, if, if inflation was one of those things that the average person understood a little bit better, it might be easier for them to decode exactly how they are being brutalized by Fed policy. Now, last week, uh, Jim Rickards did a uh, thing on Kitco with Peter Schiff where they agreed on almost everything except for the definition of inflation. And at the end of the video, Jim Rickards was using the modern definition of inflation, which is, you know, prices rising. And Peter Schiff was using the old school definition of inflation, which was the expansion of the money supply. And Peter, right. Peter Schiff actually posted on Twitter, I think yesterday, a photograph from a Webster's Dictionary from like 1913, which I think was the year before the Fed was created, where the definition of inflation was an expansion of the money supply or something you know extremely close to that. It didn't have anything to do with prices. So yep. the argument he makes is that the central banks have come in and modified the definition of inflation to suit their needs, which they have. And the... Fed will attest that only the rising prices as indicated by CPI or as indicated by the PCE uh, indicate inflation. If we recalibrate people to think about inflation as just looking at the money supply, regardless of whether or not that money has yet to increase prices, right? Because an increase in prices is is a function of an increase in the money supply. If we could get the average person to just look at inflation as the pure expansion of the money supply without, you know, making the velocity of money argument, whatever, but just say, hey, it's out there, okay? We have more money out there somewhere, whether it's parked or it's making its way through the lumber market or whatever right now. 
Uh, wouldn't that simplify things and kind of give people an easier way to gauge uh, how how much the purchasing power of their dollar is diminishing? Yes, that's a tough question, Chris. I, I would say yes and no. I, I see where it would be valuable to simplify what's going on. But unfortunately, I think we're trying to find the same thing. We're trying to find simple answers to complex questions. And I, I think although it would do some good, it, it might have some negative consequences as well. So what I mean by that is going back to 2008, everyone assumed that by the Fed taking base money and their balance sheet from let's call it 800, 800 billion to 4 trillion would create massive price inflation. But it, it, it now I would I would argue that the CPI is definitely understated, wildly understated. But it, it didn't create this 20, 30 percent type of almost hyperinflation that uh, you would have you would have thought. So why is that? Because the M2 money supplier, the broad money, didn't go up at the same pace because the banking system, if excluding government spending that's monetized by the Fed, the banking system is really more responsible for the creation and destruction of money supply that circulates in the real economy to create the consumer price inflation. So as a loan is created, they're create, they, the banking system, is creating additional money supply. When the loan is paid back, it decreases the money supply. So the only thing that base money does in other words, bank reserves that the Fed prints for quantitative easing that takes their balance sheet from 800 billion to 4 trillion. Now, I, I, I guess it's over 7 trillion, I'm sure. Um, that doesn't really, it's, it's not a causal, a direct causal effect to the broad money. The, the, it just increases the capacity of the bank's balance sheet to extend more loans. But see, there, there, there needs to be uh, incentive for the banks to create additional loans. And if the risk premium is too high, there's no clearing mechanism. So what I mean by that is if you're the, the bank of Chris and you've got a, a trillion dollars in, in bank reserves held at the Fed because they did quantitative easing, so your bank reserves are just through the roof. Right. Uh, that gives you the uh, well, now we don't even have reserve requirements. But back when we had reserve requirements, you, you know, you could have lent out, let's say, 10 trillion dollars in additional loans that was backed up by those the, the one trillion in bank reserves. Right. You could have created an additional amount or uh, nine or 10 trillion, whatever, in uh, additional money supply. But you, you still have to have a profitable loan. Right. And if, and if everything around you is like, yeah, I see the, the, the fake news with the economic data, but I'm not buying into this 3% unemployment rate. I don't care what Trump says about the economy. I, it, it's, it's, it's all smoke and mirrors. So the bank of Chris puts a high uh, risk premium on there. You charge higher interest rates, let's say. And because the economy is so poor, no entrepreneurs can afford to pay your hurdle rate because they can't get enough cash flow to service that debt 
at an interest rate that would make sense for you to account for the additional risk in the economy. So what ends up happening is, is although you may have a, a trillion dollars in bank reserves that you could multiply up to, let's just call it 10 trillion, uh, you can't, it, you don't even lend out a dollar because there's no one profitable. And then you have to look at the demand side of the equation. So there has to be entrepreneurs or there has to be people that are wanting to take out additional home loans, additional car loans, additional uh, loans to start businesses. And if we have all this regulation that's coming down on the typical entrepreneur, we have the, I mean, we can go down the, the laundry list of, of these, uh, you know, social justice warrior type uh, regulations that, that, that we now have that we didn't have now. You know, every single board has to have this person and that person. If you're an entrepreneur, you have so much more liability now than you did just three or four years ago. I mean, do you really want to go out there and, and risk your life savings to take out a loan to start a new business? You know, the answer is probably no. So you have the willingness to lend go down because the risk premium is increasing and you have the demand for those loans going down because the risk premium is increasing. <laughs> they can see it. And then plus we're leveraged to the hilt, right? The consumer has is at prior to COVID at all time highs at, of consumer debt. The state's all-time highs of debt, corporate debt, all-time highs, you know, sovereign debt, obviously at all-time highs. So we, we, we don't have the income coming in. We don't have the cash flow as a society to take on more debt. And therefore, when we have these loans being paid off, it has the tendency to decrease the money supply. Now, if you, now I'm talking about broad money. I'm not talking about base money. So then if you look at a chart of M2 recently, you see that it's gone completely parabolic. It has gone up with the Fed's balance sheet. But the reason isn't necessarily because banks are now lending and they're getting aggressive and people are just wanting to take all of these loans. It's because the deficits are being monetized by the Fed. And when the Fed monetizes the deficit, meaning that the Treasury just issues uh, debt at auction and through the shell game of the primary dealer banks, that debt is purchased by the Fed, creating new bank reserves. Then the bank reserves go to the government. Then those bank reserves get spent, and, and I'm not going to go into great detail, but the effect is they get spent directly into the economy. And at that point, Chris, you're right. Base money does correspond, and, and, and there is a causal effect between additional base money and additional broad money in the real economy. Yeah, but if, if it's being monetized by the Fed. But so, so you, I, I get it that you want to simplify it and to, so we can further educate people. But I don't want to get it too simple because then it's like we're giving inaccurate information that in the long run is just going to confuse people more. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think that is – I think that's a fair way to put it. Um, even though under – in the situation you just described, I mean the money supply would also contract then uh, if – if that lending was to be undone, right? Or if those- uh... Well, it, you'd have you'd have two cross currents there. So you'd have the, the money supply in the in wanting to contract, the money supply that was based on bank lending. But at the same time, you'd have a cross current of the money supply increasing by the government spending what the Fed has printed. You see, the, let, let me just walk you through one thing here. So. 
if, if, if the government issues a treasury and that's purchased by the Fed, the Fed has to print additional bank reserves to buy the treasury. Right. So let's just say it's $100, right? So the TGA, the treasury, has their checking account with the Fed. It's not in the commercial banking system. Right. So the only thing the Fed does is just print up an additional $100 in bank reserves and gives it to the TGA. Right. They don't even to- print it. They just put a comma on a spreadsheet somewhere. Exactly. Just a little electronic. You got an extra 100 bucks in the TGA. So that's base money. That's increasing base money. The same thing the Fed would do if they purchased that treasury from JP Morgan. Right. As long as it's a financial institution, then it just increases base money right. held at the Fed. Right. But what happens is the treasury then takes that hundred dollars and let's say shoots it out and gives it to Chris in the form of a stimulus check. And then you take that hundred dollars and deposit it into your bank account with the commercial banking system. So that increases the deposits in the real economy by a hundred dollars that increases broad money. And then what would happen is the TGA. So they're, they're basically giving the commercial banking system a liability in the form of an additional hundred dollar deposit. But then they take the hundred dollars of bank reserves and it would go from the TGA and it would go to your bank. Let's say you bank with Wells Fargo. It would go into their uh, checking account with the Fed. So the amount of bank reserves in the system by the transaction going from the Fed or excuse me, from the TGA to you, the amount of bank reserves in the system wouldn't increase. It would just change hands from the TGA to Wells Fargo. Now, initially it would have increased because the Fed had to print the additional hundred dollars in bank reserves, but by the Fed, or by the government spending it into the real economy by Chris taking that check and depositing it with his bank, we've also increased broad money. You see, so when the now if the uh, if the Treasury would have issued that uh, debt and that someone would have bought it that was in the real economy, like, let's say, Chris Irons buys it with one hundred dollars, then we're not creating any new bank reserves. There's no more additional money supply broad or base that's being created because it's just changing hands. It's an asset swap from Chris Irons, he's taking his $100, giving it to the TGA, and they're just giving him that $100 treasury, right? So it, so that's why I always preface when I'm talking about increasing the, uh, the broad money supply with government spending, that it has to be monetized by the, by the Fed. If it's just the government deficit spending, then they're getting those dollars that are already out in circulation. But if, if the Fed creates more bank reserves, the, the, the main takeaway is, and then the Fed, or excuse me, then the Treasury spends it, then it's also created additional base money and additional broad money. And I know, I'm, hopefully most people can follow that yeah. uh, without the use of a whiteboard, but that's, that's where it gets really sticky. And people have a hard time understanding that because they think the Fed is printing money and therefore it just, sooner or later, it's got to get out into the economy, and that's that isn't necessarily true. It 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 just it it the Fed could print a hundred trillion dollars of bank reserves, and if it and if it wasn't uh, if the if that printing of a hundred trillion dollars wasn't to buy uh, government debt directly for, or to monetize the 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 debt from the Treasury 
or if it wasn't, if it somehow didn't create more uh, loans in the real economy, you wouldn't see one uh, percentage point of additional CPI growth. Yeah, but the the fact that it's been created, even if it's base money, right, is still, I guess what I'm trying to say, because I understand exactly the argument that you're making. And I'm just trying to think about whether or not it's it is a folly to think about it on a very, very basic level, which is, you know, once it's created, even if it's a bank reserve, uh, it has to be, uh, I don't know, accounted for in models or uh, at least we have to know that it's out there. Right. I mean, what yeah, would, whole- so what would be the effect of the Fed going out tomorrow, George, and printing uh, or one quadrillion dollars? And which is what a million trillions, I think. Let's just say yeah. they they went out and printed some ungodly amount of money, right? Or they yep. Neil Kashkari hit the comma button three times when he was supposed to hit it once, and they yep. added a couple zeros to it. But that money was all held in reserve by J.P. Morgan. All, what would yeah, the, what would the effect of that be on consumer price inflation? Just in general. Well, as far as the CPI, as far as prices, zero. Right, but what what alternate consequences would there be from that? What what, what would the psychological prices. consequences be to you know people well, going out and say, well, prices. yeah, you'd see asset prices go up, and then from a psychological standpoint, now we're talking about a whole different ball game. Because why would people, asset prices go up? Well, because you're expanding the capacity of the of the. Uh, of the banking system to extend more credit to hedge funds and financial institutions that are going to see that as a Fed put and go into the market and just buy, 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 buy. Right. Like so Jim isn't that isn't that creating inflation though? As well, as defined by the Fed, if if asset yeah, prices asset are rising. Well, asset inflation, yes, it's it would definitely uh, have the potential and the likelihood, I would argue, of doing that. And, but in order, and wouldn't that in wouldn't order, that asset inflation shoehorn open the inequality gap even wider oh 100 percent. so what so is it not a logical fallacy to think that just looking at the creation of the money it should be something that alarms people that are of lower socioeconomic status oh i totally agree let me be clear i'm not disagreeing about that what what i'm trying to to think through is that if they printed a quadrillion dollars of bank reserves tomorrow, just overnight, if that would somehow affect uh, consumer prices in the real economy. And it it really wouldn't because, uh, you know, I guess you could argue that if asset prices went up, then people could sell that and then they could spend the money, but it it wouldn't have a direct uh, effect other than increasing asset prices. So obviously that's inflation as well. It's an inflation of asset prices. But it, it, especially right now, Chris, because there's no reserve requirement. So there's really nothing preventing the banking system to, to, of, of increasing the money supply by a quadrillion dollars. There's really nothing, nothing to prevent right. them because they really don't need the bank reserves in the first place. So if there was, uh, if the banking system felt as though they could make money by, by creating an additional quadrillion dollars, It'd be done. It'd be done. But they but the only way I think that they think they can increase their profits is by creating additional balance sheet capacity for financial institutions. 
for hedge funds. They don't think they can make any money by uh, by giving the average Joe uh, a loan to start a business. They you know they they don't think they can make money by giving a home loan. And you say, oh George, I'm getting a home loan all the time. Yeah, that's because they're flipping it to Fannie and Freddie, and then it's going right onto the Fed's balance sheet when they securitize it, and it's a mortgage-backed security, right? So let's see what the what the mortgage market in the United States would look like if there was no Fannie or Freddie, right. if the government wasn't subsidizing it or the Fed wasn't buying the, the securitized loans, right? It, it might be a, a, a completely different situation. So my point is that I think there's a strong appetite for these primary dealer banks to, um, to create more um, additional, I don't wanna call it lending, but additional balance sheet capacity for these financial institutions and hedge funds to take on more risk because they think there's a Fed put. So what's your downside relative to your upside? And if, if you've got um, you know very, very little downside, then why not create an additional $10 billion loan to hedge fund XYZ to go in and, and, and buy credit default swaps or something like that? But you can't, t but the, that same bank, if you say, well, why don't we take uh, a $10 billion loan and instead of giving it to the hedge fund, why don't we give it to uh, Chris and George that want to start their own rental car company to compete with Hertz or something like that. And then the bank looks at that and says, no way. Why would we do that? Because if we give it to George and Chris, we've got, let's call it 50% downside and we only have 50% upside. But if we give it to hedge fund XYZ, we've only got a 5% downside and we've got a hundred percent of upside. It's, it's much more of an asymmetrical bet. So the, the appetite, to use the additional balance sheet capacity that's produced by the additional bank reserves, taking it to a quadrillion dollars, is there for the financial economy, but it's not there for the real economy. And I think it would have to be there for the real economy in order for those bank reserves to translate directly into higher consumer price inflation. I think where we get the consumer price inflation, Chris, is when the Fed just monetizes basically 100% of the, the debt the government is issuing and that money is going directly into the back pocket of the the person on the street that's going to spend it and get velocity up and uh, whether through it's a stimulus program uh, ubi or additional infrastructure spending i think that's where you're really going to see uh, not only m2 but velocity and consumer price inflation increase substantially George, yesterday uh, the Democrats came out and said that they wanted the Fed to look at addressing racial inequality through their policies. And going back to what we were talking about earlier today about what happens when you address the wrong problem, you get the wrong solution, which leads to more problems. Uh, explain what the folly of politicizing the Fed in that manner could wind up being. Chris, the, okay. the island I'm on right now, it's a gorgeous island. Uh, I, I, I go jogging almost every night right at sunset, and there just happens to be a lot of turtles running around. I got not, not really running around, but <laughs> it's kind of scooting around, right? And whenever, I, they're all over the place. And it, you jog up and down the sidewalk and you see them there and you jog next to them and there's only one thing they can do. You'd think they'd try to like scratch you or maybe bite you or hiss at you or something like that. Nothing. 
They've got one tool at their disposal. All they do is just go whoop, right back in their shell. So you yell at them, you, 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 know, you knock on their shell, you do anything to scare them or get them off the road so they're not gonna get hit by a car. And all they do is just whoop, right back into their shell. That's the only tool they have at their disposal. These turtles are just like the Fed in the sense that the Fed, they've only got one tool at their disposal. Right. It's just print bank reserves. That's it. That's it. Or manipulate IOER to try to get the interest rate down. Right? So if all you can do is print bank reserves, well, tell me, how, how is that going to do anything to solve climate change, uh, racial inequality? It, it's just... It's ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. And it just goes to show you how, how little the average person and politician right. understands about what the Fed does or what their capabilities are. Yeah, they're just completely misguided. And that's kind of what I wrote yesterday on Twitter. I wrote that the idea that Democrats want the Fed to end racial inequality is one of the most flawed ideas I've ever heard, even coming from a party full of flawed ideas. Well, and if they can, but then let's let's go through that quote unquote logic here. If they can do that, then why stop there? Right. What? Well, let's cure cancer. Let's right. eradicate poverty. Right. I mean, let's end world hunger. Let's get a cure for AIDS. I mean, let's solve climate change. Let's get on a sustainable energy. Let's populate Mars. I mean, my goodness gracious, why are we setting our expectations so low? Yeah, exactly. It's an extraordinarily slippery slope, right? And <laughs> once you use the Fed to, quote unquote, address racial inequality, however they would do that, it would ostensibly be either probably making government larger or printing money and giving it to a select group. Aside from the moral hazard you create and the the unrest you would create from doing that. What is, you know, the next thing is people are going to stop lobbying the government and they're going to start lobbying the Fed individually for their issues. Like you said, whatever it is, right? It'll just and be that's, that is a slippery slope that we do not want to go down. And let, let me tell you why. I, I'm sure you know who Dr. Lacey Hunt is. He's one of my favorites. And for anyone listening to this podcast right now, I would strongly encourage them when this is done to listen to the last episode of the end game which is bill fleckenstein and grant williams podcast where they interview dr lacy hunt and he outlines his argument for deflation okay and no one has studied this better than dr hunt and, and if you haven't heard him listen to that podcast and within five minutes of listening to him speak you'll understand exactly what i'm talking about and he is someone that's on the deflation side of the argument as of right now. And Grant and uh, Bill, uh, you know, push him a little bit and say, OK, well, let's go through some thought experiments. Let's look at Japan. You know, what would it take in order for Dr. Lacey Hunt to go from the deflationist camp to not the inflation camp? Because Dr. Lacey Hunt doesn't go from deflation to inflation. He goes from deflation to hyperinflation. Right. And those are his words, not mine. Okay? And so what would cause that? What's, what's the catalyst there? 
And what he says is if you start using bank reserves, the base money that we were talking about earlier, as legal tender, we're going to hyperinflation. So it once the Fed starts paying the bills, is how Dr. Lacey Hunt says it, then then we have crossed the Rubicon. Right. And there's and then we're gonna if, if we just have this disinflation or call it Japan, and I think Schiff has said this very well many times. He said Japan's the best case scenario. That that would be a dream come true. Yeah. For the United States right now. Yeah. Yeah. That that's that's bad, but it ain't that bad. But you go over to hyperinflation, and that's when we go from okay, it's bad, but it's 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 manageable to where everyone in the entire economy, except for maybe just not just the one percent. I mean, we're talking about the one percent of the one percent of the one percent get wildly wildly rich. And everyone else just is in extreme poverty. I mean, that's one thing that would reduce the wealth inequality because we'd all be equally poor. Yeah, and we're yeah. already kind of close to that with the Fed kind of exploring this idea of giving money directly to citizens, right? That's been yeah, in the news I, over the last two weeks. They want to create a system. There's talk about debit cards. There's talk about, you know, issuing a, a Fed card. And, and that's exactly what you're talking about. That's the wolf in sheep's clothing right there. Yep, that's correct. You got it. You got it. it I think what's going to happen is they're going to look at this last round of stimulus where it was difficult to get the checks to the individual people. And there was all this fraud and they sent checks to 10 million dead people or whatever it was. And they're going to say, OK, well, that's a bad system. So what we need to be more efficient. And it, of course, I'm, I'm sure they're going to somehow spin this to where it's for your security and for your safety. All you have to do is download the Fed app, or I always call it the Freedom app, sarcastically, because, you know, as Ron Paul says, uh, just look at the name of what it's, uh, and it always does the opposite of right. whatever the, <laughs> the policy is. Right. So I, I, I always call this the Freedom app. You download that onto your phone, and then we'll just transfer these stimulus payments to you, or UBI, in the form of this Fed coin at once a month. And let's say it's $2,000. Okay, so now they're directly, going back to Lacey Hunt, they're using bank reserves as legal tender. And that's what most people, uh, the Austrians and whatnot, that, that might not completely understand uh, the banking system, that's what they think it is. That's what they, they think bank reserves are legal tender. But that, that would cross the Rubicon, as we said earlier. And then uh, I think they could also to have total control over the velocity. Because if you've got your little stimulus check every month on your phone and you're going to Starbucks and just scanning your code with your iPhone or whatever it is, and if velocity wasn't high enough for them, if they wanted to inflate away the debt faster, then all they'd have to do is just put a deadline on the time in which you can spend that money. Right. And if you don't spend the money within that time, poof, yep. gone no longer on your phone. And if that does, so let's say they take it from 30 days down to 15 days. And if that doesn't create enough inflation, let's take it down to 10. Let's take it down to five days. And if you only have that 10 grand, or if you only have that two grand for five days, you're going to go right out there and spend it along with everyone else. And you're going to, you're going to see it. See, and the, the problem there too is inflation is something that creeps up on you. 
It's 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 not something that boom, you know, one day it's there and oh my gosh, where did this come from? It's obvious. You know, prices went from a dollar for a uh, a bottle of water up to $100 overnight, it really creeps up on you. And I just interviewed my good buddy, Eric Townsend, who is the host of Macro Voices, and he articulates this extremely well. And he thinks that the Fed's gonna go to this system of, let's call it a, an app, a Fed coin, basically getting money uh, directly to people through the form of helicopter money, UBI, uh, QE for the people. And for the first two years, we're not gonna see much inflation. And, it, and I think the government's going to lie about it. It'll probably be up, you know, 10, 15 percent. But the government, of course, is only going to say that it's at 3 percent or 4 percent, something like that. But we're all going to, like we've done the last 10 years, look at our grocery bill and say, what? You know, 2 percent CPI. This makes no sense. So I think they're going to continue to lie about it for sure. And that's part of their game plan. But at a certain point. Uh, the cat's going to be completely out of the bag. And that's how they're going to uh, really create this inflation they need to wipe away their debt. Because that's the only way you can get out of a $26 trillion debt problem is by defaulting or defaulting through inflation. Right. Because they're, they're both uh, a way of defaulting. But uh, my, my real point there is that I, I think it creeps up on you and then I think they go full tilt. Right. So it's it's like they try two thousand dollars a month, then it goes up to three thousand. And now let's say we're a year into it and they're like, well, we haven't seen any inflation. This is great. We finally achieved this utopia where none of us have to work and we can just leverage the power of our own currency. We just need to get out of our own way. And we wouldn't have to, you know, be shackled by going to work every day. We could just have all these foreigners produce all of our goods and services. And all we have to do is just print the money and give it to them. You know, what's not to like? And then we say, well, if we can do $3,000 a month and there's no inflation or we haven't seen that much of it, well, shoot, let's just go up to 10000 And then I think once you do that and then you take M2 from – whatever it is now, I don't know if it's 23 trillion or, uh, and, and that's that we know, that's not including Euro dollars, but let's just say that you take it, it's at 20 trillion, let's say it triples, right? And you haven't had much of an increase that they would admit to, but then bam, it hits you all, not at once, but it the genie's out of the bottle and the prices go up 10% in a month. Then the next month they go up by 20% and then it's totally out of control and you can't decrease the, the Fed's balance sheet. You can't take that money back. And it's just going nuts. And I think that's most likely the end game. Uh, I guess the, the good news is it wipes out the government debt. But as I said before, that doesn't matter because the economy is going to be so distorted and it's going to make things so miserable that we're going to have to hit the reset button, not just on the debt, but the entire structure of the economy. Yeah, and it seems we get closer and closer every day. Every day I read a different headline, it feels like we're being pushed further in that direction. I mean, the fact that it's noticeable on a daily basis is frightening. This is something that should be occurring 
gradually over, you know, hundreds of years, right, or decades at, at least. But to wake up every day and to see a new headline, I mean, you know, two weeks ago, we weren't even discussing about the Fed involving itself with racial inequality. And now two weeks later, here we are. And so the speed at which this is moving in that direction is frightening to me. Um, my final question to you, I want to get your thoughts on gold and silver. I want to get your thoughts. Uh, we've had a pullback here over the last couple of days. But of course, obviously, since the last time I talked to you, which was May, gold and silver have gone completely apeshit. Through the $2,000 mark on gold, silver's up uh, almost 100% off of its $14 lows. Uh, or if it hasn't breached the 100% uh, mark, it may have actually at some point. So I want to ask you a couple questions. First is, what is the gold and silver market telling you? Um, secondly, what do you think about these recent pullbacks here over the last two days, uh, if anything? And third, what do you think this portends for the future? Well, I think gold and silver are two separate asset classes. It's, that's the way I look at them. I look at in, uh, gold as insurance. And I look at silver as more of a speculation. Now, I understand that silver holds its purchasing power as well, because, but because it has some more industrial uses and the supply side of silver is a little less straightforward than gold, I just kind of divide them. So as far as gold goes, personally, I don't even look at the price. It doesn't even matter. I just, whenever I get an extra 100 grand or 200 or whatever, I just, 10% of it, I buy gold. Just if it's 20,000 or 200, I, I don't care. I don't even look at the prices, buy it. Because I'm not buying it to get rich. I'm just buying it to stay rich. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a big difference there. So as far as if I was just trading it, then I would say I think it's gone up based on fundamentals. When you look at M2 money supply, I think historically gold goes up when we have negative real rates, which I think we'll, we'll have long term. And I, I mean, it's obvious that uh, people are looking at the whole system and saying, wait a minute, the, the, the end game here is exactly what we just talked about, this helicopter money. And if that's the if that's the whether we get there in two years or 10 years, that's where we're going. And if, if that's where we're going, I want to make sure that I own hard assets and definitely, definitely precious metals. Now, if I was a trader, you could say, yeah, it's it's run up a lot. There's probably going to be a pullback. Nothing goes up in a straight line. It's probably overbought. So I might wait for a, a time when it's it's kind of technically oversold to uh, buy a little bit more. But then when it got to that point, I'd just, I'd load up. Yeah, will, and, will it matter in, in two decades? Yeah, exactly. So, so that's why it helps me just to compartmentalize my portfolio and to ask and, and make sure I understand why I'm buying the asset, right? If, if I'm just buying it as an insurance policy and I believe that we're going to go through this, uh, at very least, uh, stagflation, uh, in the next, you call it five, 10 years, something like that. Whenever it comes down the pipeline, it's impossible to time. But if, if, I'm, if I've got a long-term view on gold, I mean, do I really care that it had a pullback for two days? I mean, I, that's totally irrelevant. Right. Um, so I think you've really got to decide whether you're buying it for that reason or you're buying it just as a, a speculative trade and just trying to, to make a little bit of money. 
with with silver, I kind of put it more into that category. But even with silver, I don't know that that pullback would really bother me much. I'd still probably be a buyer. I'd just like to buy a lot more uh, the more it pulls back. And um, the, the, I, I kind of look at uh, Bitcoin the same way as I look at silver from a standpoint of I, I think it's a, a definitely a speculation, obviously a lot of risk, but I think there's so much asymmetry in the upside downside that it still makes a lot of sense. So that, that's how I, I, I look at gold especially, is I, I don't try to um, time it or I don't try to get too cute. I just buy it. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm a consistent buyer of yeah, physical. Yeah. And, you know, I tweeted out the other day when the price crashed by $120 Gold is down by, or gold's $170 off the highs, and I put a little smiley face because I know what I'm doing, you know? I know, okay, well, there were some miners, like I wanted to buy Newmont, which I didn't have, so I bought a little bit of that, you know, things that even with the run-up I had missed and was saying, ah, oh, you know, probably wouldn't be a bad time to allocate a little bit more here and there. When you're buying physical bullion right now, some of the prices are just ridiculous and I don't even look at it I really don't you know I have my allocation that I want to put into physical bullion and I do it and I and I really I you know I would pay I would pay a 20% premium to what the bullion costs right now without even without batting an eye because that's that's the way that I own it and I you know I'm owning it for the long term and I'm not like like I just said you know I'm not going to be worried in two decades from now three decades from now, whether or not I bought it on a Tuesday after a huge dip or a Monday when the, when gold, you know, spot was $50 higher. I exactly. think if our thesis is right, that's going to be a material. Chris, as we had a, a, me and my entrepreneurial buddies always had a saying that, uh, you never want to, uh, you never want to hop over dollars to get to pennies. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing. I think if you're looking at gold in this market long term, you, you, you don't want to hop over dollars long term uh, just for pennies today. And uh, I, I also think that by having a strong pullback that I would be much more bullish about that because nothing goes up in a straight line. And if it does, that's not a healthy bull market. Like a, a healthy bull market climbs a wall of worry right. as shifts all the time. And it's very, very true. And if you just have everyone on one side of the boat, that to me is, is, is not good. In fact, since I've really gotten in the investment game and macro and everything, what I've noticed since 2012 is whenever everyone is talking about something and everybody is bullish, it's 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 generally we're, we're due for a pullback there because right. all, all your buyers are gone all your buyers have already bought and i remember i was having a conversation with someone the other day about the last huge run up in gold i think it was maybe 2011 and at the time i didn't know anything about macro but i was in phoenix and i did recognize i did recall or i do recall going to the malls and every mall I went to had all the carts, like in the middle of the, the aisle between the inline stores. We'll buy your gold. We'll buy your gold. We'll buy yep. your gold. We'll buy your gold. And I, you go to cocktail parties. You go to the, the nightclub or something. Everyone's talking, oh, I just bought gold or whatever. When you start hearing that, whether it's with any asset class, 
that's when I'm a little hesitant to buy if, if, if it's a speculation. Right. If it's insurance, then it's a totally different thing. But if it's a speculation, I, I, I get worried. I like buying things when if you tell somebody that you're thinking about buying it, they tell you that you're absolutely out of your mind. Yep. You're crazy. <laughs> when I first started buying real estate in Medellin, as an example, in 2015, I mean, my family was didn't even want me to go. It's like, no, please don't go. You're going to get kidnapped. No, I don't. I don't feel. You know, my mom. I really don't feel good about you going there. I don't think you're going to be safe. And it's not blah 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 blah. That's when you want to buy, because you're going to crush it because you're buying it when it's super, super cheap, right? I mean, a lot of people don't understand that you make a hell of a lot more money when you own something that goes from horrible to bad than you do from good to great. Right. That's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. You can look at any of these companies that trade as like equity stubs as an example. You know, for instance... Um, what the hell was I just, I was just thinking of one and it just slipped my mind. But any company that trades like an equity stub, that trades like a call option, you know, it's that first, you know, say it's trading at a dollar. Well, when it goes from one to 10, you're going to make 10 times your money. And if it goes to 10 to 20, you're only going to make twice your money, you know? So yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great way of putting it. The earlier you get in, the quicker your investment will multiply. And uh, yeah, that. That's why that's why I really like buying when there's blood in the streets and I like buying hard assets because they can't go to zero. Right. So because the argument against that, Chris, is always, well, OK, if you buy something when it's cheap, a lot of times it's cheap for a reason. Right. And that's because it's going to zero if it's X, Y, Z company hurts, as an example. Uh, but if you're buying a barrel of oil, if you're buying a, a piece of copper, if you're buying a house or, or gold or silver, uranium, uh, it, it's not going to go to zero. So it, it, that's why I really like buying commodities when they're super cheap. And right now, I don't, according to Jim Grant, I just heard uh, him on a podcast saying that he's done some research and commodities relative to financial assets are at a 120 year low right now, going back to 1900. So if I'm looking at something to speculate on, uh, I think commodities look real good right now. Yeah, I always yeah. say diversification is much more different than just owning stocks and bonds. If you want to, you know, have a portfolio that's just stocks and bonds, you're not diversified. You know, you have to get out of the dollar. You have to get into emerging market companies. You have to get into commodities. You have to get long volatility. You have to, yep. uh, you know, there's certain things that you can buy to really diversify yourself across currencies, across asset classes. Uh, I think you make a perfect argument for commodities. I think that makes a hell of a lot of sense. And yeah. I, I was actually, I was just in Philadelphia last weekend and I was near a neighborhood called East Falls, which is uh, on the northwest side of the city that has really, there. there's a, there's a neighborhood called Maniunk that's even further northwest that has kind of been developed over the last, you know, few decades. It's kind of known as a college area mixed with uh, a neighborhood where there's a really strong, like, Irish population uh, in Roxborough. And East Falls is kind of tucked between Maniunk and the city. And 
I was talking to somebody about it saying, you know, for as long as I've lived in Philadelphia, nothing has ever gone on in East Falls. They, they don't have any restaurants. What hasn't been for the want of trying places have opened and shuttered. They, yeah. there's nothing there. There's no reason to go to East Falls unless you live there. There's no, I mean, I think they have a gas station. They have a Sunoco and I think there's one restaurant and that's it. And you have this whole little neighborhood. So we were talking about where would I buy if I was buying? And they were talking about, oh, you got to buy in Brewery Town. You have to buy in Northern Liberties, which are two neighborhoods that have really been on a boom now. Brewery Town for probably five, 10 years. Northern Liberties for probably 10, 15 years have just been in. And the area I used to live in South Philly at 11th and Wharton also been in a boom for five, 10 years. You know, there's tons of restaurants, dozens of things. They say, oh, you got to buy there. You got to buy there. I said, no, 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 no. If I was going to buy, I would buy in East Falls. Why would you buy any fault? Nothing has happened there and nothing is ever going to happen there. And I'm like, that's exactly what I need to hear to buy in East Falls. Because you know that the time is going to come, George. You know, the t- I don't know when it's going to yeah. be. Five years, 10 years, 15 years. But East Falls is going to be the rage at some point. And I will have paid $40,000 for my house. <laughs> yeah, there's. Yeah, there's always got to be a, a, a catalyst in there. But I think you hit the nail on the head with the, the problem with the way we're hardwired as, as human beings and that we are very risk-averse and we don't like going in and buying something unless there's no reason we can think of not to buy it. Right. And at that time, you're at a top. Because if you or your friends can't think of a reason not to buy it, everybody's already bought. Right. 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 Then you're going to get crushed. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm such a firm believer that the market just tr- sucks in as many people as it possibly can, especially retail. And, and when it does, then it, it flips the boat upside down on you when everyone's on one side. It's all due to psychology. So you've got to understand that and you've got to you've got to fade that. You've got to be a contrarian in the in the true sense. And and you've got to you know, Jim Rogers is just such a great example. And you've got to have such a belief system in your own ability and your own decision making process. And most people are just so indecisive that they they just they, they can't get it done. You got to have guts, and you got to have um, probably um, an unjustified uh, sense of your own ability to make decisions. I know I would put myself in that category <laughs> as, as an entrepreneur for so many years, for sure. But uh, you, but you get you see guys that can do and gals that can do that, and uh, regardless of how many negative things you want to bring up about buying equities in Zimbabwe, Jim Rogers knows that he's smarter than you are and he's going to do it and he's going to make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as an example, of course. So I, I think we should all strive to, to learn from people who have been able to uh, conquer that side of the human hardwiring for so many decades. Yeah, and when you say be a contrarian, that means being a contrarian even when the majority is contrarians. 
you have to write yourself sometimes too. It's like when you're in the marching band and you get off step with the guy next to you, you have to do one of those little hop steps and get back on to get back on step. Or if you're in the military, right, you have to shuffle your feet one way to get back in sync with the guy next to you. Because you can be a contrarian and try to take the contrarian viewpoint, but when the contrarian viewpoint becomes the mainstream, then all of a sudden you're not a contrarian anymore. Even though everybody's saying, well, look at the big contrarian play that everybody's in on. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real yeah. mind fuck. Yeah, that, that's, I, I couldn't agree more. But I think, I think your sentiment's about just believing in yourself. And look, if you know your shit, you know your shit. A lot of that we see in the short-selling world too. Where you go out there and you say, hey, I think whatever, the receivables are fake. And you learn the first couple of times people come back to you and they sue you and they say, well, you're saying false and defamatory stuff. And you start thinking, man, did I get this wrong? And you have all these bulls in the company that come back and say, well, they were audited by PwC. Do you know more than PwC? You know, you really think you know more than a multi-billion dollar corporation? And you start second guessing yourself. And then all of a sudden one day you wake up. And the company goes to zero. And you're like, shit, I really do, you know. And it, the great thing is you don't even have to be that smart. You just got to read You just gotta read filings. You just got to have common sense, you know. Talk about the things like George Gammon talks about, like Jim Rickards and Peter Schiff and all these, you know, great thinkers that are rooted in common sense. So I think you make a great point. I think that's a great place to leave it. I want to thank you so much for coming on, George. Uh, I appreciate your time today. I, I just I love the way that you explain things and break things down. And I'd encourage everybody to check out your YouTube channel, man. The Rebel Capitalist Show. You guys are kicking major ass. Every available <laughs> ass. You have like, what, 200,000 subscribers now? Uh, no, I think maybe 168, something like that. Uh, but, the, but the Rebel Capital Show podcast, that's uh, the audio from my interviews and my live streams, that's really blowing up. I, I'm, I'm shocked because it was just kind of an afterthought. And uh, every single couple weeks or whatever, I get the download numbers from my assistant. And it's just, it's growing just substantially every single week. So thank you if, if any of your listeners are watching the Rebel Capital Show on YouTube or listening to the podcast. Really, really appreciate all the support. And I, I sincerely appreciate you having me on, Chris. Uh, you've been having me on since uh, almost the very beginning. And you were nice enough, I remember, to come on my show. You're probably one of the first people that I interviewed when I started the Rebel Capitalist Show, when I maybe had... Who knows? You have 10,000 subscribers, something like that. So I want to thank you first and foremost for uh, having the belief in the, the my ability in the future of where the show was going. It, it was it, You didn't have to do that, and I always remember that. Well, I watched a couple of your episodes, and I knew right from the beginning that you had your head screwed on straight. I think I described you as one of the most brilliant people in finance the first time I had you on, and uh, I wasn't just... Uh, I wasn't jerking your chain, man. I, I really enjoy your videos. I watched your interview with Ron Paul. Uh, I watched uh, the other one when you were talking about the Dragon portfolio. So I'm a listener as well, too. It's awesome to watch you kind of just speed past me on the podcast highway because uh, you really deserve it and you really know what the hell you're talking about. And so uh, I couldn't be happier for you. And uh, look forward to having you back on again some point soon, brother. Yeah, and I look forward to having you on my show next week. So, guys, stay tuned for that. I'm stoked about it. All right, George, take <laughs> care, buddy. All right, bye. That was the one, the only Mr. George Gammon. 
the man himself, high-quality individual, most importantly, smart guy that's interested in breaking down what's going on for the average investor. And, you know, people ask me all the time, oh, you see, Fleckenstein started a podcast. As a matter of fact, I was supposed to have Bill on a couple weeks ago. He turned me down because he had another engagement. And he said, you know, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I think I have to do this other podcast with so-and-so. I can't do it. You know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I said, listen, man, it's not about that. It's about you getting your voice out there. I couldn't be more stoked. I actually just saw he's going to be on Nigerian's podcast now. And he's got a podcast with Grant Williams. And, and he's got over 20,000 followers now. So Fleck is getting the play that I thought that he deserved when I started my podcast, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to have him on. So when I see a dude like George Gammon or a dude like Bill Fleckenstein just blow past me on the podcast highway, man, I can tell you, not only are there no hard feelings, it's quite the opposite. I get super stoked about it because uh, this isn't about me. It's about getting the message out there, getting financial education out there to people that need it, understanding how broken the system is and why the things happen that happen, uh, and just kind of pulling the curtain back on bullshit in general. That is what's important to me. I could give a fuck about the charts or the ratings or any of that shit. Uh, I'm not trying to, you know, make myself into some podcast billionaire. I'm trying to get the truth out. And guys like George Gammon, guys like Bill Fleckenstein, those are the people that you're going to get it from. So I couldn't be happier. It's the fucking weekend. I am out of here, folks. Got some great stuff coming up next week. I am stoked about it. But for now, it's Friday night and I'm out. Peace.